if you would get standard Bluetooth, you could not track a ice hockey pack traveling at 160 miles per hour with the precision and the latency of a fraction of a second. That voice you're hearing is Fabio Belloni, the chief customer officer and co-founder of Coupa. We have more than 50 stadiums where every single professional game is tracked by us. We track pack players, referees, anything moving on the ice. Welcome to The Intelligent Engine, the Silicon Expert podcast that lives in the heart of the electronics industry. Brought to you by Silicon Expert. Silicon Expert is all about data-driven decisions with a human-driven experience. We mitigate risk and manage compliance from design through sustainment. The knowledge, experience, and thought leadership of the team, partners, and those we interact with every day expose unique aspects of the electronics industry and the product life cycles that live within it. These are the stories that fuel the intelligent engine. Today's spotlight falls on Coupa, a company headquartered in Finland that provides a powerful technology platform for location-based services and applications for indoor positioning. Their real-time indoor positioning systems keep track of everything from equipment to people to hockey pucks. Coupa provides accurate, real-time positioning using AI and Bluetooth interoperability. To talk about all this today, we have Fabio Belloni, the chief customer officer and co-founder of Coupa. He's a leading authority on advanced location technologies. At Coupa, Fabio focuses on accelerating the success of companies in Coupa's partner ecosystem, evangelizing the benefits of accurate positioning capabilities across a wide range of use cases in industries that include manufacturing, healthcare, sports, supply chain, and logistics, security, and others. He's a frequent contributor to leading industry publications, and he's the author or co-author of numerous academic papers and has several granted patents and patent-pending applications. Fabio, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. First of all, we're talking to you in Finland, right? Are you in Helsinki? Or? I'm currently in Espoo, which is uh, right next to Helsinki. And how long have you lived there? It's been a long time. I was supposed to stay in Finland for one year for my Erasmus time, which is this European exchange program between universities. Yeah. And that one year translated into more than 20. I did my PhD. I got married. I had a couple of kids and just, I think, life happening. Did you grow up in Italy? Yes. I, I was born in Italy, grew up in Italy in the north of Milan, between Milan and the Alps. Were you studying electrical engineering at that point already? I always been interested in technology. My father was studying telecommunication and he worked for 35 years in Telecom Italia, which is the major mm -hmm. Italian operator for landline and then later on became also for mobile communication. And was your dad an engineer? What kind of job did he have? He's one of those stories that he, he worked in the same company for more than 30 years. He started by driving around with a car and fixing landline <laughs> by literally crawling under the roads into the cabinets to fix <laughs> the lines and wires. And he ended up his career by leading some team selling an ADSL line for internet connections. I remember him driving back home with the company car yeah. every now and then. It was a Fiat Panda, red. I still remember that with written Telecom Italia on the side. When I went to high school, I went to a technical high school, mm. not the, the classical lyceum. Yeah. So I studied a lot of... Uh, 
technology. I've been, I've been doing soldering and building circuit design already when I was, uh, what, 15, 16, 17. Wow. So I did that. But in my youth, I liked a lot staying outside, playing soccer or football with friends. And one of my passions is sailing. So I spent a lot of time sailing both in the Mediterranean Sea and in the Italian lakes. So starting in 2003, I started to do my, my PhD studies which took four years. And then uh, once I graduated in 2007, the deadline was to try to be aligned with my firstborn, Lillian. So I wanted to finish my PhD studies before my kid was born, and I managed to accomplish that. And then in the last part of my studies, for about a year, I was already cooperating as an external for Nokia. Uh-huh. So Nokia was having a problem of trying to localize radio devices from a phone. And that was the main topic of my research work in the university. So I started to cooperate with them. And then I enjoyed a lot and probably they enjoyed as well, because at the end of my PhD, they offered me a job. And that's when roughly in 2008, I joined Nokia as a full-time employee, and I was a senior researcher at that time, hired to develop localization algorithm. That's amazing that your first job as a young person and your first job after the PhD were in your field of interest. Not many people can say that. Yeah, no, I, I feel myself very fortunate. I agree with you. It rarely happened that someone can put in practice everything that he has been studying and investigating during this PhD time. I, I consider myself as very fortunate in this respect. And that's also why, Eric, when at Cooper we say that we have been working with localization technology for more than 15 years, we are not joking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the project at Nokia, was that also using radio triangulation instead of GPS, or was it a combination of both? When I joined Nokia, the project I was working on was called the uh, Find and Do. Find and Do was a project where you could take a phone, you could open your phone, and the phone will show you the direction and the distance to where a transmitter is. Ah. So that that was done with uh, Bluetooth technology. I think that just a few weeks ago, Apple launched a product called AirTag that does exactly the same thing. Wow. So in other words, using your phone, you could find a device with Bluetooth and home in on it. And this was how many years ago? When we started that project was, and I got involved, was 2006. Wow. And I would say either 2009 or 2010, it was CES in Las Vegas, mm -hmm. Consumer Electronics Show. Yeah. If you actually Google online for Nokia Locate sensors, you will find a picture of a modified N95 phone, which shows a green arrow to a green tag attached to a keychain. That's amazing. 15 years before the AirTag and Samsung's SmartTag, you're doing this already with a Nokia N95 phone. Yes, that was exciting. Nokia was an extremely innovative company, and they were really scratching the surface of what really consumer-based localization technology could bring, well, 
15, 20 years later into the, into the today. Yeah. In 2012, Nokia was undergoing some turbulent time. And myself and the member of my team, we decided to effectively leave Nokia and we took the technology and we took the prototyping work we have done over those, uh, those six years, actually more, it was almost eight years outside Nokia. And, uh, and that's how Coupa was created. So Coupa is a completely independent company from Nokia. We have been growing steadily and organically since uh, 2012. Started in five and now we are almost 60 people. We have, I think, 2,600 deployments at this stage and, and we operate with more than 500 customers globally across 55 countries. So it's been quite of a journey from uh, where we started to, to where we are now. How much range did that technology have? How far away could you find something? We were already quite good. Uh, we had a good antenna in the phone. And as far as I remember, staying within the limits of radio, propagate, of radio transmission, we were doing easily like tens of meters. Wow. So I, I remember we were playing hide and seek in the office. I love that picture of engineers hiding under desks and sitting up on top of a toilet and <laughs> hiding their legs, running around, trying to chase each other. So that really is incredible that you were that far ahead of this because Apple's AirTags and Samsung Smart Tags, everybody's talking about that these days. And it sounds like everything that was needed for that technology, you had already figured out 15 years ago. Why do you think it took this long to come to the consumer market? Standardization always takes a long time, and uh, the market wasn't ready. And uh, also, we were using a different technology back then. Yeah. Like, for instance, the AirTag currently are using... The, actually, the AirTag are for the most Bluetooth, still Bluetooth tags. Mm. But then for the last part, for the precision measuring of distance they use ultra wideband in our case we were able to do everything in bluetooth but i have to admit that our ranging was not uh, very accurate because we were based on power measurements but the mm -hmm. angular estimation was actually very reliable already back then when we talk about industry 4.0 what we're really talking about is another industrial revolution so if you think about it, Industry 4.0, it, it, it effectively describes the fourth revolution. So depending on where you read, you could summarize that the first industry revolution was the one that happened in the 1800s, where they started to run machinery on steam. The Industry 2.0, that's where electricity came in and replaced the steam machinery. Then the 3.0 revolution was where internet became part of the, of the manufacturing by allowing optimization and information to be sent not over snail mail, but over email. So in a blink of an eye, everything was moving faster. And now with the Industry 4.0, that's effectively where we are talking about the old digitalization era. That's where the new revolution comes because now you give information, you give a new set of eyes to the people that are in charge of making those decisions. And the decision is not made only on the executive level in a company, but anybody and everybody working within the factory is in charge of some level of decision 
So tell me a little bit about the the hardware that you're using these days. Is Bluetooth a, a part of that? Is it ultra wideband? What are you using in the guts of the transmitters, especially? At the moment, we are focusing on using for the majority Bluetooth radio. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we still defend this choice is because of our vision and our soul. So during the early days of that research, we did a lot of analysis with many different radio technologies, including ultra-wideband, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, audio, visual, magnetic field, anything wow. that could localize a device indoor without using GPS. You have to consider that back then, Eric, when we were talking about indoor location, and I still remember when we went public in 2008 for the first time with Nokia, when we showed and we were talking about mounting an infrastructure indoor, enabling localizing devices indoor, the answer from the people was like, why don't you use GPS? Mm -hmm. And we were saying, because GPS doesn't work indoor. And the second question was like, why do I need to pay for an infrastructure? GPS is for free. And they forgot that actually GPS cost a few billions <laughs> in terms of infrastructure. It's just that it's paid by governments, right? but it doesn't come for free. So you've got the challenges of GPS not reaching through ceilings and into underground facilities or even in in some standard buildings. You've got the problem of Bluetooth having a limited range inside, passing through walls, especially I'm imagining in in settings where there are there's a whole lot of of chatter across the frequency spectrum, like in, in a healthcare environment. How do you tackle all of those issues? Do you rely on a single technology or are there multiple locating strategies that allow you to solve that problem? So what we did was to build an engine, a positioning engine, which is practically technology agnostic. Mm. So at this stage, we are getting directional information from Bluetooth radio operating at 2.4 gigahertz, Mm -hmm. but we could get any other kind of measurement from other radio at different frequencies. Mm. So when we built our technology, we chose to really focus and develop the brain of the system. And of course, since nobody has built it, we had to build our own leg for running in the market. Yeah, And that's why we used the concept of we build locators, we embrace Bluetooth, but also in there, the Bluetooth radio for our standpoint we can run them either in a fully standard compatible mode mm-hmm. which is interoperable with all the billion devices that are there or we can run it with our own stack or with our own proprietary technology what are some examples of what you can do with with your proprietary that you can't do with standard bluetooth For instance, if you would get the standard Bluetooth, you could not uh, track a a ice hockey puck traveling at 160 miles per hour with the precision of 10 centimeters and the latency of a fraction of a second. You can do that with yours? Yes. That's incredible. And this is not just me saying, it's already two years that we are in the market. We are tracking... uh, Every single professional hockey game across three leagues, the Finnish Hockey League, 
Continental League and uh, Norwegian League. And we have more than 50 stadiums where every single professional game is tracked by us. We track puck, players, referees, anything moving on the ice. Wow. So when you're tracking players, I think about sports fans who are obsessed with statistics, the the plus minus and all of the other stats, especially in hockey. People are obsessed with that. Are you gaining any interesting insights about player performance through that tracking? Oh, yeah. There is a ton of data. Someone calls it data junkie. (laughs) People that they they never have enough data to analyze the game. And a way, effectively, if you think uh, about, for instance, baseball, which is the king of the sport when it comes to analytics. Sure. You can really have so much data about the players that you could really draw statistics and analytics, not just about a single person performance, but also about the tactic the, our partner that has built the software application for analyzing our data, they have the concept of momentum, which means how much a team is pushing towards the other team. And it's the kind of thing that when you watch a game, any game, any sport, anyone that understands something about that game, you have that gut feeling that my team is doing well, my team is doing bad. Yes. Or for the past 10 minutes, they play well, or now they are suffering. That is what is the momentum. It's to have that kind of positive edge on the opponent and kind of squish them into their half of the field. And can you actually see that in a quantitative way? Because I feel like momentum is such an intangible thing. Like you described it, it's just something you feel. But can you actually see that in the numbers? Yes. And it's quite amazing when you see it because it really correlates often very well with the score, with the goal happening. Yeah. And likewise, you can do it in sport. We have been in projects where even in logistics, we were talking with the end customer. And of course, they have the floor manager. Of course, they have the person that knows like nobody is colleagues and how the goods are moving within the floor in a certain time span or for being able to deliver to a given customer and so on. But still, after having applied RTLS and location-based logic and location-based service analysis with statistics, they are able to optimize the work efficiency by 30%. 30%, it means that in this case, this customer was able to squeeze the same amount of delivery in two-thirds of the time. That's unbelievable. So at the end of the day, he was able within his shift to send out one truck more full of goods. Yeah, just by knowing where everything is. Not just where it is, but how does it correlate to what surroundings? So it's uh, it's really a combination of seeing the whole. You probably have seen Eric this map where you see all the dots moving. Yeah, sure. Now think that you would know exactly what each of those dots represent. Is it a forklift? Is it a good? Which kind of good it is? Mm-hmm. And then in automatic, the logic and the machine would know where these goods needs to go together with which other goods it needs to travel mm-hmm. and then build a real-time optimization on how to collect and instruct someone walking on the field in making the right choice at the right time to, to optimize all the workflow. It also helped the worker itself because I don't think nobody likes to walk the floor and search for goods. 
Yeah, that's a waste of time. It's bad for morale. Nobody wants to do that. So are you playing a part in that AI piece of the puzzle where you're actually analyzing the data and figuring out how to optimize that? Or is that something that the customer then takes the information from your engine and has to develop their own analytics to actually make changes based on what they're learning? We do a little bit of both. So Coupa was born originally as a data generator. Mm -hmm. So we were the one responsible to accurate locate the object, provide that dot on the map information mm -hmm. to someone that then would start to run analytics, statistics, and so on. And our role is, has been, of course, very important because when you run analytics algorithm, the output of any algorithm, it gets better if the data that you are feeding the algorithm with are reliable. Sure. And our job, our aim has always been to create the most reliable dot on the map. Yeah. To be able to create the reliable information that could helpfully feed any kind of algorithm from convention and basic uh, flowchart logic into complex AI with machine learning and anything before that in order to make the artificial intelligence even more, more intelligent, so to say. Yeah. So we have been historically really much focused on creating that reliable data, but now we are actually moving into start building some of our own analytics and logic because anyway, the amount of data we give out is only a portion of the immense amount of data we actually generate in terms of raw information. Talking a little bit more about the the COVID example that you brought up where we're talking about a form of electronic contact tracing, I think that's something we have all become familiar with using our phones. So we, we know when two devices are close to each other. Have there been other applications in healthcare or otherwise during the pandemic that have used Coupa technology? Absolutely. There has been use cases, for instance, related to hand hygiene, especially in hospitals or in other healthcare systems or healthcare centers. We have, for instance, published a study done as an output of one of our products in Japan, where the study highlighted that by using location-based technologies was possible to increase by 300% the, the, the time that a caregiver, whether a nurse or a doctor, is washing his hand before touching the next patient. So you're tracking the time that they spend in front of a, of a sink or a wash basin washing up? Yeah. So doctors and nurses, they should wash uh, their hand every time before touching the next patient. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is not always the case is not always enforced. And even though there are great campaigns done by hospital in different shapes, size and form to provide education, there is always situation when because of something, the doctor might walk in without doing that routine of hand hygiene. But now having a system that doesn't know exception, that would always measure when someone walks in the room identify that, okay, you cannot walk straight to the patient. You first need to go to the sink yeah. and spend a certain amount of time there and uh, by doing so, wash your hand and then work 
walk to the patient. That's practically where creating that basic simple rule, you can greatly help the doctor itself to execute his job, but also the patient to feel more safe that he's he's taking care in in a great facility. What else are you tracking in a healthcare setting? Yeah, we have been tracking, for instance, crash carts that are also extremely important, especially in case of emergency. Of course, when you have an emergency, you got to know where the crash cart is immediately. You can't start searching for it. Right. So that that's one use case. We have been tracking defibrillator. We have been tracking IVs. We have been tracking different kinds of pumps. We have been tracking beds. This has been one of the things that I always find amazing, that we were interviewing some hospital system in North America, and they were telling us that they lose about 10 to 20 beds per year. They lose beds? Yes. That's a pretty big thing to lose. (laughs) They, I I always found it amusing because it's not something that you put in your pocket and you leave it. But they do for whatever reason, and they lose one. And the same thing goes in this electrocardiogram machine or any kind of mobile vital sign machinery that they might take in intensive care. Some of those machines, they cost like $50,000. Yeah. And I remember visiting the warehouse of one of these hospitals and they had 30 or 40 of these uh, cardio measuring machines on, on a line. And I was asking, wow, why do you need all of these in the warehouse? Mm. And they say, well, because that's the basic stock, because we lose them. Wow. We lose them and we need to buy them again. So every hospital has million of dollar budget every year that they use to effectively keep on buying components that they misplace, tools, anything. Yeah. And are any of those things ever tracked outside the facility? So obviously indoors, we know how you're doing that. If, let's say, particularly here in the Western United States, we have a lot of rural hospitals that share equipment across multiple locations. Do you ever work with GPS or another technology to be able to track things if they leave the facility and go somewhere physically distant? Yeah, we do. We have uh, a lot of great technology partner, and one of the company we we work with in the outdoor scenario, especially, has been Semtech, mm. and Semtech is the company that builds LoRa, and it's a very good technology for be able to measure their the approximate position of object outdoor by using devices that consume very little power, a fraction of what the GPS would consume. Or they can be combined with GPS so that the device computes its GPS location, but then you use LoRa to export that into the network. So we have announced, for instance, partnership with some company where we they build a tag that combines the, the Coupa technology built on top of Bluetooth with LoRa. Mm. And in that case, this tag can allow the, what we refer to as hybrid RTLS where hybrid RTLS means that you have now objects that can seamlessly move from indoor to outdoor, but the end customer doesn't want to have multiple tags attached to the device. So for us, working with Silicon Expert has been great because we use a platform called Arena that connects into Silicon Expert database. And 
we are always just a click away to know in real time which components is best for us to choose for a certain production line and ensure already at the beginning uh, at the design phase that whatever element or component we put inside our hardware is ultimately fulfilling all of the ambiental or radio requirements that are part of our product quality. What would you say is the most precise application of Coupa technology that you can talk about? Well, we actually went public in a couple of trade shows where we play our ice hockey table game. <laughs> you know, the miniaturized ice hockey game, the one yeah. that was put on the table. The classic. So the hockey table, we are able to be literally centimeter accurate. One centimeter. Yeah, to position that miniature pack on the table. I could see a lot of practical applications for that beyond the fun one of the tabletop hockey. In an industrial application, what's the most sensitive deployment that you've done so far? Typically, what is asked for Coupa to fulfill as a requirement is less than a meter accuracy. Mm -hmm. We have projects, I would say that this is for the very large majority, but we have projects where requirements are like... uh, 50 centimeter or even 30 centimeters requirements. So like a foot. But then they become very special projects. This has been so fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, Fabio. Thanks for having me here. It was a pleasure. And I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in to this episode of the Silicon Expert Intelligent Engine, a look at Coupa's Industry 4.0 Advanced Location Technologies. Be sure to tune in for new episodes that will delve into more of the electronics industry. Upcoming episodes will explore the advent of Bluetooth 5.1, Wi-Fi 6, and the intricate financial nuances of finding the best possible pricing for your components. This episode of The Intelligent Engine is sponsored by Coupa. Be sure to share our podcast with your colleagues and friends, and you can also sign up to be on our email list to receive updates and the opportunity to provide your input on future topics. Go to siliconexpert.com slash podcast to sign up. Until next time, keep the data flowing.